1: This World Shared Practice Forum will differ from our typical World Shared Practice Forums. This video is an installment of our History of Medicine series, in which we will be discussing the history of modern medicine with experts from around the globe. Unlike most World Shared Practice Forums, there will be no discussion questions during this video. However, if you would like to ask a question or leave a comment, please feel free to do so at any time. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this video. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Christopher Newth. Dr. Newth is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Southern California and attending physician at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Kit, uh, welcome.
2: Thank you very much uh, for having me, Jeff.
1: Kit, um, um, around uh, the United States, around the world, you're known for the research that you've done in pediatric mechanical ventilation for the last three decades and more. And um, we're pleased to have you with us today to hear your view of where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Kit, could I ask you now to kind of look back, where has the field of mechanical ventilation in general, but pediatric mechanical ventilation uh, come from? What What are the important milestones? Uh, that we've reached.
2: Well, I I think uh, it's hard to separate out pediatric uh, mechanical ventilation from overall mechanical ventilation for the start, uh, but um, from the start, but I think we've really come from the time of the old negative pressure ventilation, which was really the the start of it. Various methods of resuscitation were uh, attempted during the around about the middle 1700s, and then the uh, after that, the positive pressure bellows were used largely, um, but it was discovered after a while of experimentation that uh, this could lead to a pneumothorax. So the French uh, Academy and the Royal Humane Society and their wisdom then banned this sort of research, which of course is almost the history of medicine. That puts a stop to things for a while, and then it inches forward. Um, Current with that, there was a bit, uh, There was really uh, advances made in intubation. And if you go back to the uh, first endotracheal tube being invented in about 1788, uh, through to the first laryngoscope being invented in 1895, really we've discovered most of the major tools of uh, intubating during the course of that time before the uh, uh, turn of the 20th century. Of particular interest during that time was uh, I think for pediatrics was the O'Dwyer intertracheal tubes, because they were really developed by O'Dwyer uh, for, the, uh, for use in diphtheria, which of course was a, a fatal, almost universally fatal pediatric disease. And those were the silver tubes that could be put in through the mouth and down through the membrane uh, for a while and then taken out. That was uh, really quite an advance in pediatrics. If we switch at that point, you go back to thinking of ventilators. The first real attempts at ventilators were negative pressure ventilators. And I believe the first one was invented by Jones in Kentucky in the middle 1800s. Uh, and there's been an evolution of them with various people's names. Perhaps the one's most relevant to uh, Boston, since that's where we are at the moment, was the Drinker, or the Drinker Shore, uh, Iron Lung which was developed, I think, in about 1928, and was first used ever on a patient at Boston Children's Hospital, I believe an eight-year-old, and uh, who did well. Um, the, then that also evolved into the Emerson ventilator, also uh, came from here, and that was the one that was most widely used, certainly around uh, North America, and uh, you know, the, always the classic pictures of the Los Angeles uh, County Hospital with the banks of iron lungs and the polio epidemic uh, showing uh, the nurses standing beside them and a patient in each one uh, receiving what was their life support at that particular time. Mm -hmm. Um, Positive pressure ventilation really started a a little bit later. but with it, there was an appreciation of some of the physiology, things such as the herring and broyer reflexes involving the vagal nerve. Um, they used a lot of bellows, um, but started to get pre- uh, a lot of experience with with positive pressure ventilation, Meltzer's intratracheal insufflation technique, which was a double bellows sort of blowpipe arrangement. But again, with the advances, people got nervous, and because they found there were pneumothoraces or problems, uh, there was a it was declared as unuseful for certain types of surgery to use positive pressure ventilation. Again, slowed things up a little bit around about the 1900s. The polio epidemic, which obviously promoted the use of negative pressure ventilation, also spurred uh, eventually the, the uh, development of positive pressure ventilation, and a lot of companies got into it, even companies which we would never think of being associated with ventilators, like Bang & Olufsen, uh, noted for their audio equipment and so on, actually made, ventilators for, to support people in that uh, in that epidemic and uh, some of which I'm told from the people in the Bang & Museum, they still exist to this day and they still work. So, um, so we had an explosion of technology around about this time uh, and uh, explosion of technology both in the making of ventilators, uh, but also in the interfaces between ventilators and the people that they served, but also some of the equipment for handling Sick children and uh, and adults, of course. Needless to say, um, very strong opinions got formed on various things. Uh, you know, if you have a successful approach to something, there's a great tendency not to want to change it. Uh, so anybody who does attempt to change it, in the form of an improvement or otherwise, uh, strikes a lot of resistance. So we have many sacred cows that have been uh, that have that have occurred. They've been created, and. Um, However, a good thing about sacred cows, as Mark Twain famously said, they make wonderful hamburgers. So some of our job nowadays is to uh, make hamburgers.
1: So Kit, uh, that was a, a wonderful overview of the, um, the history of uh, endotracheal tubes, laryngoscopes and early uh, forms of assisted ventilation. Um, but I'm sure our colleagues around the world are very interested to hear your views of where we are now. And in particular, um, can we begin with the endotracheal tube? As you noted, it was the first thing that was kind of discovered. In the um, in the era of assisted ventilation, uh, can you tell us the story of cuff tubes, uncuff tubes? Um, where are we today?
2: Well, I think uh, as with ventilators, we've come a long way, um, but as with all these things, there have been battles on the way. Some of the endotracheal tubes that were used were made of materials which caused damage to the. Uh, uh, human trachea. So it really wasn't until we got to some of the uh, synthetic uh, materials uh, and got away from the rubber type materials that we got good into tracheal tubes. Um, the first ones were, of course, uncuffed, and it was felt from the anatomy that uh, uncuffed tubes were the only things that should be used in a narrow, in the, through the narrow subglottic region of the uh, child's airway. Uh, I think this was a view which was uh, very strongly held by some of our ENT colleagues, Uh, and there was a great deal of resistance uh, to using even uncuffed tubes in things like epiglottitis and uh, croup. Uh, In the mid-1960s, a couple of Australian uh, anesthetists uh, actually really showed uh, that, that uncuffed tubes could be used safely under those circumstances but those battles lasted into the 70s and in some institutions even into the 80s well the the next tube that uh, well the next advance that was made was with the cuffed uh, endotracheal tube and uh, but the cuffs were made in such a way that they were relatively low volume and therefore relatively high pressures could be created in them and so these weren't altogether the best tubes that we could uh, have, and again uh, gained a, a little bit of notoriety in certain areas. Uh, the next advance, I believe, was really the, the cuff volumes were changed, so they became high volume and low pressure, so these could much more be safely used. But I think we and others have published uh, our data showing that really, provided you pick the right size tube to start with, be it cuffed or uncuffed, they're equally safe to use. The cuff tube, in my opinion, has certain advantages because uh, particularly in the middle of the night you're not asking somebody to have to change a tube because it's suddenly got a big leak or because people think it doesn't have a leak at all and should have. Uh, So I think that has been uh, a major advantage uh, in the advent of of these particular tubes. The tube sizes have been standardized in the sense of internal diameter, so as you well know you can get a tube from 2.5 and a half sizes, internal diameter in millimeters, up to 9. But uh, uh, of interest is that the outside diameters have never been standardized, so if you have several different endotracheal tubes side by side you'll see that they will all have slightly different outside diameters which clearly is important if you're putting it inside another tube the trachea the other thing that hasn't been standardized is the placement of the balloon and some of the cuffs on the uh, tubes are actually quite proximal and uh, once you've placed one you can look in and see that you actually see the top of the uh, of the balloon through the uh, vocal cords, sometimes even uh, into the oropharynx. Um, so I think that the better tubes that are being made are being made with the cuffs rather more distal. And uh, another advance, whether it's an important advance or not, I don't know, but is also the ridged cuff where there are longitudinal ridges in the cuff which allows different pressure points and uh, perhaps the drainage of secretions through those. And uh, people like Marcus Weiss and Zurich have looked at these sorts of tubes uh, uh, quite strictly. and uh, But I don't know if they're really a, a major advance or not. They're nice tubes. <laughs> From that point, of course, endotracheal tubes, particularly small ones, are also associated with some of the sacred cows that I mentioned before. Uh, the biggest one being, uh, of course, is that uh, Uh, for an infant, if you put in a small tube, it's like breathing through a straw. And it surprises me that uh, uh, people who have otherwise excellent observational powers cannot see that a child breathing on CPAP through a small tube is doing just fine, thank you. And the reason is very clear. If you look back, uh, even at work from the 1970s and 80s, there's some very nice presentations. If you think of the cross-sectional diameter of the uh, of the trachea in a newborn baby or a small baby who would have a, a size 3 um, internal diameter uh, tube in place perhaps, uh, the surface area or the uh, or cross-sectional area, sorry, of the uh, uh, trachea would be about 7 um, millimetres squared. If you go to an adult, you might be having a, a 9 tube, three times larger than the adult, but now the surface area uh, of the trachea is 10 times greater. So in actual fact, the relative size of the endotracheal tube that you put confidently into an adult is much smaller relative to their body size than it is in an infant. Yeah. So who's really breathing through the straw? Yeah. Of course, it's the adult. The um, When one interprets issues such as uh, resistance to airflow through tubes, uh, it goes without saying that if you take a small tube and you push pressure through it, at, uh, or you put airflow through it at higher and higher flows, that the resistance will go up, at least to a certain point. Um, and there are a number of studies which demonstrate this very clearly, but they show that if you have a big tube, like a six millimeter ID tube, then airways resistance will remain very low, even at quite high flows. Whereas if you put those same flows through a small tube, a 2.5 or a 3 millimeter ID, of course the, uh, the resistance will go up. And that is then taken as proof that it's breathing through a straw. Well, of course it's irrelevant because it really is at what flow rates the infant or the adult is breathing that uh, tells you what, whether its resistance is going to be a limiting factor. Uh, Max Klein showed some years ago that uh, you know peak and mid flows uh, in, in normal uh, human beings anyway is about half a litre per kilo per minute. So if you think about that, uh, somebody who's breathing through a, a, a six millimetre internal diameter tube will have a flow of, uh, if you put a flow through of 30 litres per minute, that'll be a low resistance, it'll be about 20. Um, if you are going to extrapolate that back, to a baby with a three millimeter tube, uh, if you put 30 liters per minute through the tube, the resistance would be off the, the roof. But say that child was five kilos, then really he would be breathing at two and a half liters per minute. That would be his peak flow. And if you plot that out, that resistance is going to be very low. So there is no added resistance really to a, a small tube, and a small baby, because they're breathing at much lower flow rates.
1: So Kit, that's a wonderful overview. And as you noted, uh, many of the sacred cows that I was uh, raised on, you just debunked. Um, but I wonder if I could ask you, because I'm sure our colleagues around the world are wondering, what do you do in your actual practice? So could I ask you, do you what percentage of your patients are uh, cuffed uh, endotracheal tubes? And what percentage of your patients are uncuffed endotracheal tubes? And could I also ask, um, do you prefer orally or nasally intubated patients?
2: Well, I think in uh, terms of the first one, cuffed versus uncuffed, I would say that in our ICU most of the patients who arrive in in an emergency uh, will end up with a cuffed endotracheal tube. Uh, now we have a lot of post-operative patients who are going to be very short term, so and they will come back from the operating room without a cuff tube, and I certainly wouldn't change that to a cuff tube just for the sake of doing it. but. Um, you know, anybody with emergency stuff, particularly if it looks as though it's going to be respiratory uh, uh, in, back, in nature, that you may end up with stiff lungs or bad airways and so on, we all have cuff tubes in them. Uh, in terms of nasal versus oral, I was... Uh, taught uh, always to nasally intubate. I'm probably a bit of a dinosaur. I teach the fellows uh, how to nasally intubate so that people can do it. Certainly helpful at times when uh, children have facial trauma or other deformities to be able to put a nasal tube in. But the majority of our children are orally intubated. Um, I've always had a belief that um, nasal tubes stayed in position better. You had less unplanned extubations with nasal tubes. Um, And I think there is some evidence coming out uh, in the near future which will suggest that that is true.
1: Kit, I wonder if we could move now into the present era. And in particular, um, what's, what's the evolution of mechanical ventilation that we should know about and understand?
2: Well, I think from my perspective, of course, it's always swayed by what you were exposed to when you were young. But I think the the first ventilator that I remember so well was the, uh, the old bird ventilators uh, invented by a man who didn't trust electricity, so they all ran off air and oxygen. And uh, they were difficult to use, but believe me, if you could actually deliver racemic epinephrine through, an, through a face mask on using one of those bird ventilators, you knew how to run uh, a ventilator. I think we've, you know, there were no screens in those days, nothing much else except a gauge to tell you what, what you were doing. Uh, a pressure gauge uh, to tell you what you were doing. Uh, We moved then into the age of having this explosion of different modes of ventilation, um, all of which will have their uh, acolytes, of course, that uh, for certain specific diseases these are the only ways to to ventilate. Again, still no graphics. An example of that would be the Servo 300 uh, uh, ventilator. And then more recently, where. Uh, Computer technology has uh, clearly been more incorporated, and we have wonderful screens now with interfaces that can show graphics, they can show nice little cartoons of lungs going in and out, they can do calculations for you, most of which are not necessarily very appropriate to pediatrics, but some ventilators do have some pediatric work in them.
1: So Kit, when you walk into a room, um, what information are you looking for from the ventilator?
2: There are numbers of different things that I will... Uh, go to fairly automatically depending upon which ventilator I'm looking at. Um, Clearly the flow traces of uh, pressure and and volume and flow are helpful. They may give you information just in the linear plot of uh, whether you've got air trapping, whether you're actually getting back to baseline on your flows and things like that. Um, One could look at uh, calculations of uh, resistance and compliance. or tidal volumes, uh, mils per kilo, uh, predicted body weight or ideal body weight, uh, and things like that. Uh, but I think we've also had to learn with ca- that they have to have some caution interpreting some of these graphics. And uh, a good example of this is the good old flow volume loop. Uh, the shape of the flow volume loop may depend very much on where you actually record the uh, flow and the, uh, and the volume from. And there could be vast differences uh, between if you are measuring it back in the ventilator as opposed to measuring it on the proximal end of the uh, endotracheal tube. Um, you can have a three times difference in, in uh, tidal volume per kilo, uh, depending on, in a small baby, if you're actually ventilating them, uh, measuring it back in the ventilator, you may make some mistakes doing that. The other thing is that the graphics can be misleading, particularly with small kids with big ventilators and compliant tubing. Uh, Some of the flow volume loops may look as though they're quite obstructed, uh, even in tidal breathing. Whereas if you measure it on the proximal tip of the endotracheal tube, uh, you'll find that in fact the uh, flows look perfectly normal and there's no evidence of any airflow obstruction whatsoever. So one can make uh, misinterpretations if one is not careful. In your practice in Los Angeles, do you
1: put a what we call a pneumatac or a flow sensor on the proximal airway uh, in every patient, or in some patients do you rely on the uh, sensor built into the ventilator uh, more distally from the patient?
2: Yeah. On many patients, who have just, uh, we will rely, be cautious, but we will rely on whatever number comes out of the ventilator uh, because you know many patients have normal lungs, particularly post-operative ones and so on. There's no particular uh, need to be, uh, to be worried about that. But if somebody has uh, uh, pulmonary disease or cardiopulmonary disease, then uh, yes, we will monitor them on uh, the endotracheal tube. Now, we may not necessarily monitor them continuously uh, because sometimes there can be trouble with secretions and things like that, but we will monitor them regularly and check their tidal volumes and so on that way. Do you worry that the extra weight of the pneumatac on the
1: proximal airway leads to unplanned extubations uh, more commonly than it should?
2: If that was my only worry about unplanned extubations, I'd be happy. But no, these pneumatacs are now very, very light. Um, you know, some are combined with entitled tidal CO2 sensors. They're a little bit heavier, and of course... Uh, but I think that's just a matter of uh, good care in the uh, in the ICU. One can overcome these problems fairly easily. I mean, the weight of the old entitled tidal CO2... Uh, sensors back in the late 1980s, they were pretty heavy, and compared with that now, these are very light. So you know, again, advances in technology have uh, given us uh, uh, benefits.
1: So Dr. Newth, um, around the world, one of the most uh, common and often difficult disorders for our colleagues to manage is um, an infant or a child with bronchiolitis. Could you talk to us about the um, evidence in your experience in caring for a child with bronchiolitis? What are some of the issues that we confront?
2: I think some of the issues that are uh, uh, the one, or one of the major issues perhaps that one has to confront is that uh, not all RSV infection is bronchiolitis. Uh, that seems to be, uh, uh, those words seem to be commonly put together, but in fact, uh, RSV can just as easily cause respiratory failure uh, through pneumonia, progressing to ARDS, and that actually is the group that you get the deaths in, the infrequent deaths. Uh, as opposed to the kids with RSV-induced respiratory failure from bronchiolitis. Uh, The differences are often clear radiologically. Um, The uh, sort of uh, non-homogeneous patchy changes throughout the x-ray of a child with uh, pneumonia or ARDS. Um, But we've been able to apply things such as pulmonary function tests, Uh, not always straight out of the ventilator, but been able to apply pulmonary function testing to these diseases to tell us where we might be uh, in their severity and in their evolution. It's fairly simple and a straightforward case to show that uh, a passive deflation flow volume curve, for example, often done under neuromuscular blockade with an intubated child, obviously, um, will show you a very rapid time constant of the respiratory system. And if you do a forced deflation, a fairly normal looking exhaled flow pattern but a small tidal volume. That's classic for pneumonia or ARDS. Whereas if you were looking at bronchiolitis, uh, histologically, you'd see that the bronchi are loaded, unlike in ARDS where they don't have much stuff in the, in the airways at all. So in bronchiolitis, you've got lots of detritus and cells and one thing the another sitting in the airway. Um, sort of a hyperinflated pattern, maybe with a bit of patchy atelectasis on the chest x-ray. But if you look at the pulmonary function tests, you'll see not only the same low tidal volume that you have a vital capacity breath, sorry, on a forced deflation, but you'll see that it's very obstructive in its expiratory flow. And also the passive deflation will show a very long time constant. So when you look at those two, it's fairly easy to separate them, and you'll use very different ventilatory strategies uh, on, on each case, depending on whether you think they have interstitial disease as in ARDS or airway disease as in bronchiolitis. The pulmonary function tests that we can do now are actually quite sophisticated on mechanically ventilated children. We were able to develop a number of these uh, on monkeys, the non-human primate if you like, and then bring them back to uh, working on the human primate. But we can do a battery of pulmonary function tests at the bedside now, which are pretty much as the same as you can do in a Uh, stand up, walk in older children's or adult pulmonary function lab so we can get residual volume or total lung capacity and all these other things if needed for any particular studies or try to sort out some pathophysiology. Uh, We've been able to use these sort of results for risk stratification and uh, severity of illness and so on and so forth. Um, I think one of the other pulmonary function test, if you will, which has been of particular interest to me, but I think will be of value going forward uh, and certainly has been to a degree in the adult uh, world with uh, uh, Tobin and uh, people like that looking at it. It's been the pressure rate product or one of those variations on a theme where you're looking at peak to trough esophageal pressure and the rate at which somebody breathes, all of which you can get off an esophageal pressure probe, for example. The uh, pressure rate product is uh, the pictotroph um, esophageal pressure uh, multiplied by the respiratory rate, and it's fairly easy to record directly off an esophageal pressure probe because you see the deflections and you can also tell the rate against the time base. It's a very good surrogate for the work of breathing, as it was first described, but really should be more accurately called the effort of breathing. So continuously, you can see how much effort it's taking somebody to take a tidal breath. Uh, This can be used in anybody who is uh, spontaneously breathing, uh, and uh, it is actually, uh, it, it can be used in anybody with any disease, but certainly in the scenario of lower airway obstruction, be it asthma or bronchiolitis, Uh, or even in upper airway obstruction, but you can actually look at these traces and uh, see what their pressure rate product is, and if anything you can do to make it change. In lower airway obstruction, of course, these patients all have some degree of auto PEEP or intrinsic PEEP. And by dialing up and down the PEEP, you can actually change the amount of effort it takes them to take a breath in. So could we talk about that? This is one of the
1: most... um Commonly asked questions among uh, uh, physicians in training, which is, in the setting of hyperinflation and the concern for auto PEEP, how do you determine when to add applied PEEP and when not?
2: Well, let me take the circumstance of uh, when to apply. I think that is, uh, at least in my view and in my practice, uh, the time for that is when patients are spontaneously breathing. Still intubated, fine, but they are spontaneously breathing and you're weaning them down, Uh, for example, from an asthmatic episode. Um, I think the important point about that is that uh, if you increase the the PEEP up too close to what their auto-PEEP would be, is that you then minimize the amount of effort they have to get to trigger the ventilator to give them the pressure support breath. So for any patient with obstructed airways, lower airway obstruction, if you really want them to have the benefit of pressure support, if you believe in pressure support, the best thing to do is to actually adjust their PEEP so that it's easy for them to trigger the breath. So concentrate on the PEEP first and the pressure support will come along with that afterwards. We've shown that, and others have shown that as well. When not to use PEEP? Well, I think when you're fully ventilating somebody with severe lower airways obstruction, that is not a good time to use PEEP. They have plenty of PEEP. You're doing the work for them. They're not initiating a breath. And I think as uh, David tuxon from Adelaide showed uh, years ago in some adults, um, you can actually get patients into quite a lot of trouble by going up too much on the rate or too much on the PEEP when you're fully controlling their ventilation. That's when you get into trouble with air leak syndromes and, uh, and um, cardiac tamponade and so on.
1: So in a patient who's neuromuscularly blocked and paralyzed, no indication for applied PEEP in the setting of auto PEEP, but in a patient who's breathing spontaneously on assisted ventilation, whether flow triggered or pressure triggered there you would add applied peep so that the patient's able to trigger the breath comfortably with every effort yeah. uh to avert the kind of in- imposed inspiratory uh threshold load yeah. um and
2: to make their work of breathing less. Yes. I mean, I happen to use pressure rate product, and that's easy for us to do in our institution. But really, you can do this at the bedside clinically, just looking at the patient. You turn up the peep on a spontaneously breathing patient, and you will reach a point where it's obviously less effort for them to breathe. One of the things that may put you off a little bit is that as you increase the peep under those circumstances, they may suddenly start breathing faster. But now it's because it's easier for them to trigger the ventilator and they will settle down after a while. They'll get their new, uh, get into their new stride. So you can tune it up and down clinically without having to really measure pressure rate product. I think the other caveat I have with obstructing, with uh, ventilating patients with obstructed airways is that uh, if you're going to ventilate them going into their disease and you can use quite high pressures on them uh, because they really have uh, uh, decreased chest wall compliance, uh, you can use much higher pressures than you would in any ARDS case or anything like that. That's probably good to use pressure to, pressure control mode of ventilation at that stage. When they're weaning and they're coming down and you're uh, adding things to them, probably that's a good indication to go into some volume targeted or volume controlled mode uh, where you're not overdoing it because as they get better and they start to breathe more comfortably, you really can over-inflate them under those circumstances.
1: Um, Dr. Newth, um, this is such an important concept. I wonder if you could take us all through this again. In a child who's neuromuscularly relaxed is paralyzed and is on controlled mechanical ventilation, the problem with auto PEEP and adding applied PEEP, take us through that again.
2: All right. Well, let's think about it in terms of uh, time constants and uh, plotting uh, tidal breaths out uh, against time. Uh, As you well know, uh, it takes us about three to four time constants uh, to empty our lung from whatever volume that we put it into. If our time constants are relatively short, as they are in normal circumstance, or ARDS, that's very easy to do at regular sorts of rates of ventilation. However, if you've got obstructed airways, Your time constants become longer and longer, and it may be that you cannot get all of that tidal volume breath out. And that's when you start breath stacking. Uh, And FRC, or end expiratory lung volume, whichever term you want to use, starts to climb. And it will either go up and up until you unwisely cause some damage to the lung, uh, or it will reset itself at a new equilibrium. So you set a new FRC, if you will. Uh, David Tuckson uh, has measured this in adults. I'm not aware of any pediatric uh, work. But what he showed is if you're under those conditions of neuromuscular blockade, fully ventilating somebody, if you went to the peak of, a, of a, a tidal breath on the ventilator and then did a long apneic pause, maybe 40, 45 seconds, and allowed them to breathe all the way out to FRC, or their end-expiratory lung volume, if that volume was more than 20 mL per kilo, those were the patients that you're in danger of giving cardiac tamponade to or air leak syndrome. I suspect the children may be a little more forgiving, but probably not much more forgiving. Um, he did, went on to also show the effects on CVP and blood pressure and so on. And it's certainly pretty impressive if you increase PEEP under these circumstances or increase rate under these circumstances, just how much breath-staking and how much hemodynamic compromise you can create. Uh, Kip,
1: um, it's been a wonderful overview, but I'm sure my colleagues around the world are are thinking the same thing that I am right now, which is what of the the evidence out there now do you integrate into your practice to guide us as to what we should do now and where we're going in the future?
2: Well, this will be a very uh, personal point of view, Jeff. Um, I'll start by saying that you know we rightly as pediatricians like the mantra that kids are not little adults. But in actual fact, uh, because of the small numbers that we have in our various disease states and our ICUs and so on, medical care for children, at least in critical care, is often based on what works in adults. We seem to relate more to the adults than we do to the neonatologists in that sense. But I think one thing we do have to be careful about is that if we look at the evidence from adult-based studies, we tend to cherry-pick what we like and reject what we don't like, perhaps without thinking about it uh, too much. Uh, I like to think back to um, the ARDSnet protocol with a high-tidal volume, uh, low-tidal volume study, which I think was a wonderful study, uh, and they controlled both arms of the study with a protocol that they could all agree to and had a pretty good degree of compliance. And we have fastened particularly on one thing out of that, which is the six mils per kilo tidal volume. There's, in fact, quite a lot of differences between how ArtsNet adult practitioners ventilate their patients compared with how we ventilate ours. I could run through some of them very quickly, but, you know, we have... Uh, in their protocols and in their tables, their ventilation tables, their oxygenation tables, did things a little bit uh, differently perhaps than we do. Uh, Oxygenation, straightforward, they use 10% changes in FiO2 for their grids. Is that what we do? Or do we use 5% or some other combination? Uh, Their peep ranges went from five up to 18, you could go higher than that. Uh, Is that what we do with our patients uh, in, in pediatrics? Uh, They had SpO2 ranges and and, uh, arterial oxygen tension ranges for low, medium, and high. I think perfectly acceptable, but I'm not sure that they are acceptable to everybody uh, who ventilates patients. They had pH ranges. They just had four boxes. Um, My colleagues in the uh, Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network suggested strongly that we should have more categories of pH at which to fine-tune ventilation, um, avoiding perhaps uh, any acidosis whatsoever. I think we're rather influenced in that respect by our cardiac uh, experience and uh, probably our cardiac surgeons and the way they like things managed. But here we're dealing with lung disease, and I think we can be a bit more forgiving on the pH ranges. The adults uh, use um, a very strict about a predicted body weight. They have age and gender tables, and uh, it doesn't matter if you're 120 kilos. If, uh, if, if you're predicted to be 60 kilograms of body weight, then your tidal volumes are six times 60, not six times 120. <laughs> um, we don't know what body weight we use. Our kids range all over the place. We have children who fail to thrive, children who are obese, children who are, have contractures. We can't uh, measure their heights particularly well. Uh, is important we start using the ulnar length, for example, by which you can predict height. We have good data now from zero to 18 years, thanks to um, Jörg Hammer in Switzerland and Colin Robertson and his group in, in Melbourne, uh, where we can predict our heights if we, if we wish to and therefore calculate ideal body weights off our growth grids. Um, and then we, uh, we've talked about where tidal volume should be measured if it is important we should probably up to some age be measuring it on the proximal end of the the endotracheal tube, not relying what's back in the ventilator on sick kids. And then, of course, modes of ventilation in pediatrics. um, At least in the Capcorn ICUs, pressure control was still the predominant mode of ventilation. Even in the PALIVE study, it was at least 50% of the uh, mechanical ventilation. So we really aren't using a volume-targeted uh, or a volume-controlled mode of ventilation. In the adults, you get what you get. We have, uh, in pediatrics, also switched our practice. Um, uh, we uh, tend to use far less arterial lines now than we did before, so we have many less uh, arterial oxygen tensions to to measure, um, except perhaps in the most sick children, hemodynamically unstable children, where we will use arterial lines, but we rely much more on the non-invasive measures of uh, oxygenation. So, and, and, and these have the advantage of uh, being continuous, so in fact we can measure things like um, oxygen saturation inspired uh, oxygen fraction O2 ratios uh, continuously. And as long as the uh, oxygen saturation is less than 98%, uh, we can come up with numbers on the SF ratio which are pretty equivalent to the PF ratios. So, uh, a number for a, a PF ratio of adult ARDS of 300 is about 265 SF ratio. And uh, the other end, say at 200 uh, PF ratio, probably about 205 SF ratio. So within those sort of limits, we can tell where we are with oxygenation and create low, high, and uh, medium gradients. Some of the, uh, we talked about calculation of ideal body weight. Does it matter? Well, I think that clearly it matters that one doesn't overdo things, but in the face of bad lung disease, I think that uh, pressure, uh, if one limits pressure, Uh, and let the lung compliance decide what the correct tidal volume should be under those circumstances, that one can be uh, equally as safe as trying to look at uh, tidal volume per kilo, um, which we don't actually do very well. Again, from the Capcorn data, if you looked at the highest tidal volumes that were achieved on those children, Uh, it was 9.2 mils per kilo, certainly not 6 mils per kilo as we would have predicted. There was a range, but that was the median. Uh, But that was on actual body weight. If you looked at it with predicted body weight, uh, then it went up to 10 mils per kilo. So quite a difference. Uh, One particular case, uh, if you used the predicted body weight, the child would have been getting 47 mils per kilo per breath. That's a vital capacity breath, so that could do a bit of damage in the long term. And again, these were children that had the diagnosis of ARDS. They were specifically selected for having ARDS. There were no interventions. We just watched what people did. But as
1: you've noted, well beyond lung protective strategy as recommended, uh, uh, certainly by the adult ARDSnet trial.
2: Yes. I I mean, I'm not trying to hold up the ARDSNET protocols as being absolutely appropriate for children. Uh, They may well not be in some circumstances. But we, we cherry-pick a little bit what we take out of them. And uh, they do do things differently. And uh, we don't always do what we think we're doing. <laughs> so going forward, one of the uh, important issues, I think, is how can we, uh, at least for the purposes of studies, so that we can really get some answers out of studies, how can we stop the various ways in which we all Ventilate patients, how can we stop it being confounder? You know, we're all experts, we all know how to do it, you know, we're great. The problem is, we all do it differently, so that it creates so much noise it's hard to see a signal. And I think that's why the adult uh, study was so good, is that they agreed on a protocol and could see a clear difference. I think if we could do that with some decision support tools, which for similar clinical situations in the sense of uh, you know, what's your oxygen saturation for this inspired uh, oxygen, uh, and what's how does that relate to your peep? If we could all make the same decision based on that combination, that would take oxygenation out of the equation of being a confounder, similar with ventilation studies. Well, Kit, this has
1: been um, a wonderful overview of... Um, uh Many decades of experience in research and uh, caring for children, and we appreciate uh, your coming here and sharing your wisdom uh, for your colleagues around the world.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. It's uh, been a great pleasure.
0: This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.